0: Brothers and sisters, uh, today's message is is going to be a topical message. Uh, There are two kinds of messages or sermons, broadly speaking. Expositional is one way of preaching, which is our general way of preaching. To exposit is to pull the meaning out of a text uh, where you're typically moving verse by verse, chapter by chapter. The Bible itself is filled with different books. There's 66 in total. We have a, a, a First Testament, a Second Testament, uh, Old Testament, as some would say, New Testament, and 66 books that fill those two respective uh, testaments. And so it, it's really good just to take a book and start at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, and just move through it. We call that expositional preaching. Uh, you see exit signs around the room. To exit is to go out of expository is to go out of the text, so you're just flowing with the text. That way you learn the books of the Bible, you learn how to read the Bible. So expositional preaching is the general default and rhythm of this church. I'm currently preaching a sermon series through the post-exilic texts of the Hebrew Bible, the First Testament, the Old Testament, and we're just moving through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and, and we're expositing, pulling out the meaning. That said, it is important at times to use a different technique in preaching, what we call topical preaching, where we look at a topic of scripture. And we move not just from one book and one verse, moving through expositionally, but we move throughout the total of the 66 books. And we say, what does the Bible, as as one book, we know it's a library of books, but there's a sense in which it is also one book. It has one author, ultimately, God. And, and, and so what does the Bible say about a particular topic? Say, uh, being single, or being married, or parenting, or being a widow, or uh, witnessing to people, or uh, issues of justice, or uh, what happens when you die, or angels, or demons, or... you know. And then you move through the whole of the Bible. Now, when you look at the Bible topically, it's important that you're also doing exposition. You are pulling from the text what it's saying. And topical preaching in that regard is a lot harder because you have to make sure that every passage you go to, you do the expositional work and the verses around it to make sure that you're not pulling a verse out of context. So typically topical preaching, if it's done right, it requires a lot more preparation on the part of the pastor, the minister, or the teacher who presides over the people of God on that Sunday. And this morning, I'm going to be doing that. Uh, I've I've labored on a particular topic that I think is an important topic for us to regularly revisit as a church. And it's been on my heart this week that this is a topic that we haven't visited in some time. And it's a timely topic for us. The topic this morning will be the topic of prayer. I'm going to take us through the Bible. So you've got to have your fingers ready. From the very beginning, we're going to be in the book of Acts. If you could turn there. And I'm going to take you to a handful of verses. So you want to be ready to flip. And I'm going to show you some different things in the narrative of Acts, this descriptive text, and what it talks about in terms of what the church looks like as a people of prayer. We know that God has called us to be a house of prayer. Prayer is an important topic throughout the Bible. And so I'm going to take us and highlight some texts. Our brother John just finished leading us in a hymn that's about prayer and prayer is the kind of thing that we constantly need to be reminded of, in particular after the tough season that we have had as a country, uh, as, a, as a nation, and here in the state of California. The, the title of my message this morning is Prayerology. I will be giving us a study ofology, prayer. And we're just going to dig into kind of what is prayer? What does prayer look like? What does the Bible have to say about prayer? I was particularly drawn to this passage Just thinking about the needs in the life of our church, thinking about what folks are going through, thinking about um, loved ones and and burdens that they're facing, and and knowing that prayer is so important for us as we're facing hard times, and for us as a community so that we are equipped to be praying for one another. Uh, Just last Sunday morning, as we gathered in worship, I shared with you that the, that the Belvins had lost a grandfather. Emil's father had passed away. And yesterday we had uh, the service here with the family. And, and, and just knowing that, that the brothers and sisters, the saints of Delray Church, were praying for the Belvin family uh, throughout the week. And we continue to pray for them as they're in a season of grieving, just before the holidays, how tough that can be. Uh, as well, this morning I was uh, on the phone And for those of you who've been following on Facebook, our beloved Clanky, who's been a a part of this church longer than I've been alive and and serves faithfully, he's been in the hospital now for weeks. I reached out to one of his daughters and I asked her, how can we be praying for Clanky this morning? In particular, we're going to be studying prayer. And so I'd I'd like to just know an update fresh this morning and how we can be praying for him and she texted back a word of thanks uh, to the congregation and shared that he's still sedated, intubated. Uh, tomorrow's a big day, he will have another surgery. It's always scary since he's still frail, and there's uh, the risk of, of, of things going bad. After tomorrow's procedure, we'll be able to wake him fully. He's, he's been out for some time and determine his chances of recovery. The hope is that draining will eliminate infections in his system that have made him so sick. And once that's under control, we can tackle the other issues. She lists a series of them. A big concern and heartbreak of mine is the pain and discomfort that he seems to be experiencing right now. So it would be great if the church could pray for dad's comfort. Thank you so much. We are a community that needs to be committed to praying. We have loved ones literally sedated you know, in the hospital, and their life is on the line. We have uh, uh, families that are getting rocked in hard ways. We have people facing times that are extraordinary. And it seemed to me we need to hear about prayer and be called to prayer this morning. Uh, I caught a horrible head cold this week, and I was just laying in bed and, uh, you know, being reminded, you need to pray more, Matt, you know. Uh, And so just all week I've just been sick with this horrible head cold, laying in bed, thinking about prayer, and burdened to talk to you this day about prayer. And for those of you who are worried, I did the Rona test. I'm cool. But uh, remember colds? Uh, <laughs> remember those things we used to get colds? It's crazy over this whole Rona season, like I haven't had a cold. I kind of forgot what those feel like. And uh, so so maybe it's not as bad. I just forgot. And because I'm not out and about, uh, uh, getting dirt in my nostrils and what have you, uh, the immune system is down. But anyway, I've been tossing and turning in bed with headaches and what have you and just saying, you know, having having a a lot of time on my hands, a lot of time on my hands to just pray and be reminded of the importance of prayer. Last week, Pastor Tony preached and, you know, I'm I'm just, you know, sick as a dog and just so thankful for Pastor Tony and his uh, word to the congregation last week, incidentally, Uh, Last month was Pastor Appreciation Month, and I really wanted to be here to thank Tony. So, if we could give a round of applause to Pastor Tony for (laughs) holding down the fort and for our leaders in the church who served so well. So, being sick in bed for a week makes you think a lot about prayer and pastoring in a congregation where uh, people come to you with the needs that they have, I, I, just, I just sense a, 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 a weight on me this morning to talk to you about prayer. So by way of introduction, I've asked for you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is, uh, is the origins account of the church. It's, it's where we come from as the people of God. The church was born on the day of Pentecost. The church is, is the body of the Messiah who ascends to heaven, and the spirit is poured out and the church is born. The book of Acts gives us this origins account, so it lets us know what the, what the church looked like, the, the prototype, you know, the, the, first, the, the first church when it was born, and what was important to the church, and what the church did. You, you know, we're prone to wander, and we've been at this as a church for 2,000 years, waiting for the ascended Lord to return. and So it's important to always go back to the book of Acts and say, What was the church when it was first born? What did it look like? so that we can remind ourselves and and get back to the foundations. The early church, the first point that I have on your outline, is that the early church was a praying community. Acts chapter 1, verse uh, 24, if you would turn to that. I want to show you a handful of verses here that shows you that the church was a praying community. Specifically, the church was a praying community when it picked its leaders and when it gathered in worship. Acts 124, we see it says, they prayed, and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of men. Show which one of these two you have chosen. This is at the very beginning as they are, are picking the replacement for Judas. We, in our public reading of, of, of scripture this morning in Luke 22, we looked at that account of Judas. And so that set us up for this to see when the church was, was, was in its origins, it, it, it cried out to God, Lord, show us who is to lead. Lord, give us eyes so that we know the shepherds who are to be leading the people. Turn from chapter 1 to chapter 2 and draw your eyes at verse 42, Acts 2, 42. We read that the church was continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. The church prayed for its leaders. The church prayed when it gathered. Turn from chapter 2 to chapter 4 and find your way to verse 31. We read in Acts 4.31, it says, When they prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I'm just showing you some samples here so that you see when the people gathered, prayer was central in their gathering. Turn from chapter 4 to chapter 8. Find your way quickly to verses 14 and 15. In Acts chapter 8, we read in verse 14 about the apostles in Jerusalem and how they heard that Samaria had received the word of God. The church is spreading, the church is growing from Judea to Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth, and they sent Peter and John there to go. And we read in verse 14 and 15, draw your eyes at 15, of Acts chapter 8, that those who came down, what did they do? They prayed for them that they may receive the Holy Spirit. In the gatherings of the early church, we see prayer is always highlighted. People are gathering, hearing about God, and, and prayer. Preaching and prayer is just foundational to the gathering of the saints for worship. Let me show you another passage with regard to p- the picking of leaders. We already looked at Acts one twenty four. Move from Acts chapter 8 to Acts 14, and find your way to verse 23. So we have seen a sample in Acts one hundred twenty four of prayer and picking of leaders. We've seen a sample in Acts 2.42, 4.31, 8.14, and 15 of prayer being highlighted as central in their gathering. And now here in Acts fourteen, twenty three, again we read, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed they were a church that was committed to praying for leaders they were a church that was committed to having leaders who would preach to the people and lead the people in prayer what you see here in a sampling of the origins account of the church this is a topical message on prayer Prayerology is that the church was a people of prayer prayer was a big deal it was a basic mark of the church now i don't want to take anything for granted in talking about prayer this morning and so next I want to move on the outline to showing you it was normative for the church in the descriptive text of the book of Acts. Now let's talk kind of bird's eye view. What exactly is prayer? We might take for granted that we all are operating on the same definition of prayer. Very simply, prayer is a conversation of a worshiper towards God. Prayer is, we might just say, communication with God. It's, it's talking to God. Not just any old God, but the true and living God, the triune God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact, that said, there is a a rhythm to our prayer as worshipers of God. We we pray to the Father in the name of the Son and by the Spirit. We're communicating. We are conversing. We are talking to the triune Lord. That's what it is to pray. Let me give you a definition that comes from The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, which is a a helpful resource, and it has this in its entry on prayer. The dominant metaphor for prayer in the Bible is conversation with God. Ordinary words or speech and conversation, for example, said, spoke, say, call, cry, describe acts of prayer as humans address the God who seeks relationship with his people. Expressive verbs for prayer, for example, cry, beseech, seek, largely reflect the emotional state of the one praying, rather than a technical vocabulary related to elaborate prayer ceremonies. In other ancient religions, prayer can appear to involve a mastery of technique and esoteric knowledge. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the primary image of prayer is just simple asking in a conversational manner. Implicit in this asking, which is neither demanding nor mere wishing, is the expectation that the asker is both humble and expectant. The elements of speaking, waiting, listening, and biblical prayer suggest a tone of conversation, face-to-face. So, prayer is personal. It is personal. It's between the worshiper and the creator. This uh, uh, includes, this prayer includes different kinds of ways of praying. We might uh, make requests when we come to God for ourselves. I've been doing a lot of that this week. Lord take this cold away, it's, it's, it's annoying, take it away from me. That's what we call supplication. When you make a request on behalf of yourself, we call that supplication. That's one form of prayer. There are other forms of prayer. Sometimes what we call a prayer is petition or intercession. When we are praying on the behalf of another, we're, we're interceding, we're petitioning on their behalf. We, we, we pray to God for the healing of our brother Clanky. That's a prayer of petition. Versus a prayer of supplication where I might be praying for something for myself. We have prayers of confession where we come to God and we confess to Him our sin. We have prayers of adoration where we come to God and we just adore Him. Thank you for being merciful. Thank you for being holy. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for being gentle. Thank you for being kind. See, these are our prayers of adoration where you're adoring aspects, attributes of the holy triune God. There are prayers of praise where you you cry out words of praise to God, where you bless his name. There are prayers of thanksgiving where you might say, Lord, thank you for the roof over my head, or or, or thank you for my friends, or thank you for my church, or thank you for my job, or thank you for my health. Those are prayers of thanksgiving. These are all different forms. At the end of the day, what we're getting at is just simple talking towards God. Okay, so that's what prayer is. We've seen by way of a topic, it was normative for the church. This is how, how the church is described in the book of Acts as a praying and preaching community. We we've, we've have an operating definition of what prayer is and have looked at some different kinds of prayer and forms of prayer. You see in this entry here from this uh, dictionary that prayer isn't esoteric for us. It, it's not a mastery of technique. It's, it's not trying to do to, 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 do anything by way of manipulation or technique or anything like that. It's just simple talking the way you would talk to anyone else, although in this case, you're talking to the creator of the universe. Now, we've looked at what prayer is. Now, let's move and talk about what prayer is not. I've already noted that from this uh, uh, dictionary of biblical imagery that prayer isn't something esoteric. It's not a mastery of technique. Um, I'm thankful for that. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful for that that pr- prayer isn't uh, limited to the professionals or whatever. Prayer is, 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 is not that. Uh, prayer is not magic. Prayer is not wishful thinking. Prayer is not sending positive vibes, whatever that is. You'll see that in social media, you know, like I'm going through this and your secular friend, God bless his or her heart, is sending vibes, you know, like, oh, great, what does that mean? I don't, I don't know. You can keep the vibes to yourself. They don't do anything. It's not sending vibes, it's not positive thinking, it's, it's not wishful, it's not magic. Further, it's not manipulation. Further, it's not informing God as if he didn't know. God is omniscient, he knows all things. When we come to the Lord in prayer, he's not, wait, you did what? <laughs> you know, wait, you, oh, you needed that? I didn't know. Oh, cl- Clanky's still in the hospital? I didn't know that. Oh. So and so still going through that thing? I didn't know that. We're not informing him. That's not what prayer is. God is omniscient. He is all knowing. He, he can be informed by no one. Further, God is a, immutable. So prayer is not a matter of manipulating him. To be immutable is a fancy way of saying unchanging. You can't be mutated. You can't change. God doesn't undergo change, He's perfect. If you have to undergo change, it means there was something about you that wasn't right beforehand. You're maturing, you're growing, you're getting stronger, right? Uh, God's perfect, and so by definition, he isn't undergoing any, any change. He's immutable, he's perfect, he's all-knowing because he knows all things. We're not informing him because he's immutable. We can't manipulate him, we can't butter him up. Prayer is, is, is not giving God a, a, a list of things to do, Prayer is not buttering up God to get him to do stuff that we want him to do. Prayer further is not us hearing from God in the modern sense of pop Christianity where people will speak often uh, very loose and fast, you know, God told me the other day. Prayer, as we have seen, it is focused on the worshiper towards God. Now, this isn't to say that God can't bring revelation to individuals. This is simply to offer a it cautioned pastorally because it's just so frequently seen in pop Christianity of the culture where people look at prayer as a God told me kind of a thing. I would caution you to be very careful with a person who describes their Christian life constantly in this way. You know, God told me so. And, and God, I'm waiting on God to tell me what to do. Hey, hey, brother, are you coming to men's group? I don't know. I'm waiting for God to tell me. Well, I have a word from the Lord. He said you should show up, you know. Uh. <laughs> No, 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 I want him to tell me. I go, oh, okay, how does that work? You know, well, you know, the still small voice. Uh, Okay, I think you're taking that passage out of context. But anyway, prayer is, its emphasis is on the worshiper towards God. It's a form of worship. We're going to him and we're talking into him. We're communicating with him and we're not informing him and we're not manipulating him and we're not, you know, trying to get him to tell us something or anything like that. We're just throwing our burdens on him, throwing our praise on him, it's worship. The emphasis of biblical prayer is not on God toward us, it's on us towards him. It's on us coming to him. A classic definition of prayer that we see throughout scripture, that you see in the scholarly dictionaries, like one that I have showed you, or that you read in the the confessions of of church history, and the catechisms of church history. For example, the 1600s. Here's the Westminster Larger Catechism in question 178. What is prayer? We read that prayer is the offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of the Spirit with the confession of our sins and the thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. It's focused on us towards Him because that's what worship is. It's, it's giving towards the Creator. It's creatures coming to the Creator and offering Him this, this worship and coming to Him. In our church, we uh, use the New City Catechism, particularly because it just has a question in a week. I mean, Westminster uh, Catechism, they got, uh, you know, 100, that's 178 if you thought our catechism was rough. But here's question 38. What is prayer? Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God in praise, petition, confession of sin, and thanksgiving. It's the, it's the creature pouring out the heart to the creator. It, it's just pouring out that heart. With the cross-reference here in the New City Catechism, question 38, there's cross-reference there to Psalm 62, verse 8, and it, it reads this, Trust in God at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him, for God is a refuge to us. It's, it's, it's the creature coming and pouring out to him. That, that, that's right, question 38 nails it. As well, question 39 moves on, and it asks this, What is the attitude that we should pray in? And the answer is with love, perseverance, and gratefulness, and humble submission to God's will, Knowing that for sake of Christ, he always hears our prayers. And so, so it's the worshiper towards God. It's God hearing. That, that's the emphasis of prayer. So, so on your outline here as we're talking about what, worship, what, what, what prayer is not, it's not God communicating this way. That's what we call revelation, which is very special and very unique and very selective and, you know, prophets Throughout uh, the, you know, the redemption of God's people, we'll have words from God. It's very very unique moments where, where God brings revelation that way. But prayer, it's not a unique or sporadic sort of thing. It's an ongoing thing where worshipers are coming to God and we're pouring out our hearts to God and we're relying on him and we're coming to faith in him and we're coming in repentance to him because all of us have done dirty stuff this week and all of us have things going on in our lives where, where, where we need him to move or, 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 or else. Or else. And so our attitude in, in that is love and it's perseverance and it's gratefulness. It's not demanding. It's not manipulating. It's, it's not bartering. You know, God, if you give me that, you know, some of you maybe have had those teenage prayers. If you give me that, that girl right there, Lord, I'll become a missionary. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, no, no, no. That, it, it's not a bartering system here. I'm thankful the Lord answered my prayers for Erica, though. But anyway, this is, again, not to say that God does not speak. This is, again, not to say that you, you, you come to God and you ask, oh, Lord, you know, this person or that job or whatever, you know, and, and, and you're going to come with mixed motives in prayer. Be ready for that because you're sinful. You're going to come and you're going to find yourself buttering him up and you're going to catch yourself doing that sort of thing. And here's the thing. He's loving, he's patient, he's kind, he's gentle. So you just come to him anyway, and you just pour out, and you just cry out, and you just don't overthink it, or your prayer get, your prayer or life is going to grow cold fast. You just go to him, and you just talk to him. Uh, uh, any, any father is that way. I, I want my children to come to me without a filter. I don't, I don't want a processing with me. Uh, you know, they're worried that I'm going to cut them off or correct them or, you know, or check their motives or whatever. You know? I, I just want to hear from them. And I'm I'm, I'm a fallen, messed up, earthly father. He's a perfect, loving, heavenly father. You just run to him without filter into the throne room of grace because of the work of the Son. You can do that. And you just tell him whatever's on your heart. And you tell him what you need. And you ask his forgiveness if you're asking anything with mixed motives and what have you. And he is good. He is good in all of that and all the above. You just pour out to him. Okay, so that sets the tone for where I want to go. Now we're going to move into the Hebrew Bible. I need you to turn to the book of Daniel, and I'm going to offer you a theology of prayer in our prayerology this morning from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel takes us into the, the era just before and in entering into exile. We've been studying post-exile as a church, and so we, we're familiar with the other side of the exile as they come back to the land of promise. So this is on the, on the other side of it. This is what precedes the post exile. This is when the people are, are are about to be jacked by Babylon. They're gonna lose their homes. They're gonna lose their temples. There, w- there will be fathers and mothers who will lo- lose their sons and daughters. They're gonna lose it all. And Daniel is a is a prophet, a special, special, who receives where God talks to him and gives him special revelation. Okay, where, where you, you see that. God does that. God talks. Don't mishear what I said. The emphasis of prayer is on us pouring out to God. There are times where God talks, and it's very unique, and you get a book in the Bible named after you when stuff like that happens. And so we have Daniel here. Now, Daniel, by way of simple organization, the first six chapters are historical narrative, and, and, and then the six chapters after that are prophetic genre apocalyptic all kinds of book of Revelation type stuff going on and so I want to take you into I want to take you into just where it's transitioning from narrative in the sixth chapter to moving into some kinds of prophetic imagery and visions and what have you so would you find your way to the sixth chapter in the book of Daniel Daniel is a Hebrew prophet God talks to him his name means God is my judge a very unique name for a, a very specific period as they are undergoing the judgment of God and they will be exiled and God will use these foreign powers for purposes of disciplining his people for covenantal unfaithfulness. Daniel has a tough life. As a boy, he was kidnapped by a wicked king and taken into Babylon along with three other boys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They will be slaves in the deportation, in the exile of the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Daniel and his three pals are forced into the service of the royal court of Babylon. There they are given new names. Daniel is named Belteshazzar. This is a name that means uh, the prince of Baal. Baal is a pagan god. He went from having a holy name of a holy god to now being renamed in the name of a pagan god. This didn't phase Daniel. He climbed the corporate ladder, so to speak, and gained favor over those who were over him. And it was because of prayer. It was because God had ordained in his providence to use prayer. It's because God blessed Daniel with with specific gifts for this specific moment. After three years, he had the opportunity to exercise his gifts as God was revealing himself and talking to Daniel. Uh, God gave him a gift of interpreting dreams, not only recalling the forgotten vision of the pagan kings, but revealing the meaning of it in these first six chapters. As a reward, Daniel was made ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect and other wise men of Babylon. Later, he interprets other dreams of the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he interprets a vision of the famous handwriting on the wall. And now here we are in chapter 6. Draw your eyes at, at, at verse 1. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. And then Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps. He possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. And then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to the governmental affairs, but they could find no uh, ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. And these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. His God. Not our God, his God. The satraps are providential administrators. These guys have it out for Daniel. Daniel Daniel has unique revelation from God that puts him in positions of power, and God's using him in unique ways, and you see God's hand on him. And you know, hey man, his God's doing something that our gods aren't doing. And so these guys conspire against him. For, for sake of time, uh, draw your eyes at verse 6 through 9. Let me highlight in verse 7 that they come to the pagan king, to Darius. And they say in verse 7, you should establish a, st- a statute and enforce an injunction against anyone who makes a petition. That is a prayer to any god or man besides you. Throw them into the lion's den if they do. We read in verse 9 that Darius signed off on that. Yeah, I like that idea. People shouldn't pray to anyone but me. Now, with this setup, if we had time and we had uh, you know, read the whole book and had gotten up to this point, you could do it this week. But in chapter 3, they tried setting him up, and it didn't go over well with the whole golden image thing. Verse 10, Daniel knew that the document was signed, and he entered his house, now in his roof changer, It had windows that were open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. A highlight there, as he had been doing previously. He had been doing this previously. This is a part of a rhythm of his life, to pour out his heart to God. On the regular, day by day, the text highlights that he had a particular rhythm of doing it three times a day. He had previously been doing this. He certainly wasn't going to stop now. He, he, he's going to keep on praying, which leads me to the 1st subpoint as we build a theology of prayer, highlighting some things from the text of Daniel. The first subpoint here is that prayer is non-negotiable. Daniel's life is on the line, and yet he prays. No power is going to tell him that he can't pray. You know, the government might ask us to wear masks. The government might tell us to do this or that. Yeah, ask me to not pray and see what happens. Ask me to not preach and see what happens. Okay, You're not going to stop him from praying. He's commanded to pray. And, 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 and he's, he's committed to this. This is a part of the rhythm of his life. And no doubt, in desperation, as a, as a, as a kid in exile, as a kid who's been kidnapped, it, it's non-negotiable to him. What else are you going to do when you're in exile, when you're brought to a place that is so low? And that said, I'll just say pastorally that We can all confess that it is often in the low points where we're reminded. I need to pray more. I need to be praying. God often uses the darkness to draw us to him. It's trivial having a head cold when you're looking at a kid who was kidnapped and the kingdom being toppled over, but even a simple head cold kicks me in the pants. I I need to be praying more. I need need to be drawing in and just pouring my, uh, my heart out to my father. Daniel's in a low place. Prayer is non-negotiable. He must pray. He was not going to let anyone intimidate him out of praying. He wasn't going to let anything stand in the way of praying. There's a great passage in the New Testament where Jesus speaks of asking the Father things in prayer. And and in that passage, he speaks of, of prayer, though. It's not a duty. It's a delight. Daniel wasn't driven, I submit to you, by duty. Daniel was driven by delight, for the text says he was doing this previously. It wasn't a matter of, now I'm going to pray. Let me open these windows so I can make sure he sees me. No, 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 it's, it's hot. It's, it's the desert. You just have your windows open because it's hot. And I'm going to pray to God because God is my delight. In John 16, the passage I have in mind, I'll put it here in front of you. In that day, you will not question me about anything, Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask my Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive nothing so that your joy may be made full. It's joy. It's, it's delight. When you're delighting in the Lord, prayer isn't this duty. Oh, I guess i got to pray. I'm going to go make myself do it. You know, oh, it's that time of the day. Let me, let me, get, this, you know, let me get this out of the way. It, it, was, it was a matter of joy. And so Daniel's life is on the line, but he's not going to stop praying because he likes doing it. Why do, we, why do we risk our lives for joy? Think of people who skydive. Why do they do that? I haven't done it. Some of you guys had. No judgment. But why did you do that? Because it was fun. You jumped out like, yay! You risked your life because that was fun. You think of roller coasters or whatever. You think of the thrill of doing things, jumping on a motorcycle or whatever. You put your life on the line because it's fun. You, you, you enjoyed doing it. That's why you did it. When you're overwhelmed with joy, there's a power in joy where you, you don't have to be forced to do it. You just do it because you want to do it. Incidentally, that's how, that's how volition works. You do what you want to do because it made you happy. Why did you steal the cookie from the cookie jar? Well, I don't know, every kid's going to say, because cookies taste good. And when I put them in my mouth, it makes me happy. That's how that works. We do what we do because it brings us joy. When God is our delight, prayer just flows. It just flows that way. Draw your eyes back at the text of Daniel. Verse 11. These men made this agreement. They found Daniel making the petition and the supplication before his God. See, noting some different forms of prayer there like we discussed. They approached and they spoke to the king. Verse 12. Hey, king, didn't you say, you know, you can't do those things? And they answered. Verse 13. And they spoke before the king. Daniel, one of those exiles. He's not paying attention. He keeps on praying. He's doing it three times a day. Verse 14, the king heard the statement. He's distressed. Daniel's, uh, Daniel does a lot of good work for him. Uh, you know, I guess that's what I said. And so verse 16, draw your eyes at the text. He gave orders, and he was cast into the lion's den. The king spoke, and he said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring. And you know how the story goes if you've been around the church. God, of course, delivers him. The prayers of Daniel were chosen in the providence of God to change the surroundings around him. And in this case, it it involved something that was definitely supernatural. Because you don't put hungry, caged lions uh, around a a boy like Daniel and and think that he's going to survive that. Which leads to the next point on your outline. Prayer is a non-negotiable. Secondly, prayer changes our surroundings. Prayer changes our surroundings. We saw saw that in John 16. You have have not asked. Asked and you will receive. I say to you, ask and he will give it to you. There's there's something that takes place in the spiritual realm when we pray and, and God moves and God does things. Now earlier I spoke about the immutability of God. And, and so I need to remind you that God, God is, is, is immutable. He isn't undergoing change because He's perfect. He isn't undergoing change because He's all knowing. So He doesn't have to adapt because we're not catching Him off guard by stuff. You know, He's, he's not running a, a defense on us. You can't juke God. You can't, you can't guess which hand with God. He knows all things. So He doesn't have to adapt because He knows. He doesn't have to adapt because He's perfect. He is immutable. Further, He's sovereign. He's in control of all things. And so so in prayer, again, let me emphasize what I said in the, in the beginning. We're coming to Him and we're pouring out to Him. We're not informing Him. We're not manipulating Him so that He will change our surroundings. However, that said, prayer does, in the spiritual realm, involve the providential Lord using our prayers in His providence to actually change things around us. This year I preached a message on... Proverbs 16. Uh, maybe you might recall Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, verse 33, we read, We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. Dice. Lots. That's random, isn't it? Blow on it, shake it. It's random, isn't it? It's random, isn't it? No, 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 no. God says, in his word, it's not random. I determined it. say, "Well, How does that that work? It certainly looks random to me. How how does that work? Again, we're dealing with a God who is provident. We're dealing with a God who is sovereign. We're dealing with a God who knows all things. We're dealing with a God who's meticulous. There's not a random molecule in this universe. He stands over it all. I said, but but how does that work? We have this doctrine called concursus. It's one that we've talked about here in church before. It's one that we regularly revisit to help disciple you in some theology and some philosophy as we're studying this morning, a prayerology. This is important because often uh, people will sometimes, if they're not properly trained and understand these things, their prayer life can go cold because they'll think, well, if God already knows everything and he can't be changed and he's immutable, what's the point of me even praying? The point of you praying is that God is ordained in His concurrence to use your prayer for His end. You get to participate when you pray in His predetermined providential plan. Oh, what an honor and a joy to be used by God in that way. That not only when I'm pouring out my heart to Him, and He's my Father, and I'm just crying out to Him, giving my heart, that He's actually ordained before the foundations of the world to use those prayers to do certain things around us, in the, in the physical realm, through the spiritual realm, to do these things. If you want to read more about Concursus Dei or Concursus Divinus, uh, you can find this online because it, 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 the, the, the copyright on it is, uh, is already over because it comes from the 1600s. There's a great theologian named Francis Turretin. He wrote about divine concurrence in his epic, epic trilogy, The Institutes of Alenctic Theology. It's specifically in his fifth question. Uh, I'll post it later today on our, our, on our Facebook page. But he begins in his fifth question. He does it catechal style where he asks a question and then he gives answers and shows you in the scripture where it's said. But in his fifth question, he begins by saying, and I quote, "...since the question concerning concursus of God is one of the most difficult in theology, in the explanation of which, if anywhere else, great labor must be employed and error is most dangerous." It demands a peculiar and accurate discussion. And he goes on and he discusses the doctrine. It's a very rewarding and excellent study. Suffice it to say, for this morning and purposes of just briefly wrapping ourselves around it, concursus exposes the alleged dichotomy between the rolling of dice and the providence of God. So-called acts of nature, right? Oh, Mother Nature just blew in or this happened. You know, So-called acts of nature or acts of humans and acts of God. According to Concursus' day, an event can be simultaneously an act of nature, simultaneously an act of humans, and simultaneously in the providence of God. God is therein, according to this doctrine, seen rightly as the sovereign over his creation, as the sovereign over the universe. Theologians explain how the doctrine of concurrence says that two or more parties can act in the same event and produce a given or outcome without all parties having the same intent or even being aware of it. In the case of humanity, I might not be aware that what I'm doing, that what's going on, God has chosen to use it for some specific end that I'm not aware of. And the fact that I'm not aware of it doesn't change that he's not doing it. Concurrence helps explain how God can ordain evil and not be guilty of sin. He has a holy intent in all that he ordains. Evil is evil. But the Lord never has an evil intent, and he never does evil himself. He works through evil intents, however. He works through the darkness, however. We saw in our public reading of Scripture today, in Luke 22, the serpent, the devil, and Judas, and betrayal, all evil things. And yet God divinely was using all of that to accomplish the center of his very will, the cross of Calvary for the atonement of his people. In support of the concept of, a, of, 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 of this uh, doctrine of concursus, we see it throughout Scripture. I think of the book of Isaiah, where we read in Isaiah 26, 12, put it in front of you. Indeed, all that we have done, you, God, have done for us. In the New Testament, I think of 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul commented upon his missionary work in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. What did he say there? I I labored more than anyone else, yet it was not I, but the grace of God working through me. He gives credit. He gives props where it is due. It belongs to the Lord. Paul wrote in the book of Philippians, in the second chapter, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? He's talking about obeying. He's talking about you doing. That's you deciding. That's your Action, that's acts of humanity. But then verse 13, it's acts of God. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then he flips back to acts of humans in verse 14 and says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Well, which is it? You want me to do it or he's going to do it? Which is it? Concursus. It's both. Con, with, concursus. Consider Peter when he was preaching his heart out in the book of Acts, the origins and counsel of the church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he preaches about this man, Jesus. And he says, you delivered Jesus over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Well, which is it? You did it? Or God did it? His predetermined plan. Concursus. It's both. There is not a renegade molecule in the universe. God is in control of all things. The outcome of the dice is in his hands. And so we hold this intention because the scripture holds this intention. Our responsibility to pray and God's freedom to use our prayers in specific ways. Now let me highlight God's freedom. There is not an unanswered prayer that has ever been uttered by a mortal in this earth to the immortal God who stands over creation. Let me say it again. God has never not answered you. Now, the fact of the matter is, there are different ways that God can answer. You need to keep that in mind. You say, well, I can think of a bunch of things God hasn't answered for me. No, he answered. He just said no. And that's an answer. Sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says go. I'm going to do that. Go. Go do that. Sometimes God says slow. Not now. So you want to wait on the Lord. You want to keep crying out to the Lord. You say, well, I prayed for that, and he didn't answer. No, no. He he answered, and his answer might have been slow. might have been wait. So you keep praying. You keep praying for that person, that person that that hurt you, that person that ran from you, that person that ran from God ultimately, and you keep crying out. "God, God, bring him home. God, bring him home. God, bring him home. You might pray for a year. You might pray for ten years. You might, you might pray to your very deathbed, but you don't stop. Because God is your delight and your joy, and you pour your heart out to him, and you're, you're not in the position of the heavens. You don't know what he's up to. So you just keep on praying, and you don't stop. Don't stop. You keep, you keep pressing into him. Sometimes he says yes, and your surroundings begin to change, and things start to happen. I think of the promise that was made to the people of Israel in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where God said, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. This, this is a part of the promise that was made to Israel and the land of Israel and the covenant with Abram. I say this because often you know, people will quote this with respect to our nation and we're not in covenant with God in the way that Israel was. But, but he says, petition me according to my promise. And you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. I, I could change your surroundings. I could change the very land. If you pray, then I will. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. The clear implication of that is that prayer changes things. But it never changes God because he's perfect and he's immutable. So keep that foundation. We don't manipulate him. We're not buttering him up. We're not doing any of that. We say, oh, Father, you're good. I'm not going to stop praying. I'm going to pick on Terrence because he just gave me an amen. And Terrence is in the back there. And Terrence, we've got a special chair for him back there. Terrence has a, 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 a condition where his, his spine is just collapsing in on itself. And he's in horrible pain as a result of it. And, and for Terrence to be here this morning, to be able to have that chair, and be in this room worshiping us, how, how long have you prayed for healing, brother? 30 years. And will we stop praying for healing? No. And is, is God mean because he hasn't said yes yet? No. God, God loves Terrence. God loves his people. And we come to him and we just, we pour out to him and we say, oh, God, heal. Oh, God, do something. And God in his providence could be up to something that we just don't understand. So for the last 30 years, none of it has been wasted. But that doesn't mean that you won't have moments of despair when the pain is spiking. And there's there's not a pill or an ointment that can take it away. And you're gritting your teeth and you're grinding with the Lord and saying, Lord, what are you doing? You have no idea. Who are we? We're creatures changing, trapped in time, imperfect, fallen. And the perfect creator who stands over all in his love and in his mercy is in control. You have not because you ask not. So we keep on, we keep on praying. And prayer, when we, when we pray, we're ultimately trusting that God is at work in this rather than running around and trying to do it with our own hands. I love this quote from Oswald Sanders where he says, when we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. People say, why pray if God's just going to do what God's going to do? Why pray if God already knows what we're going to ask? I, I already shared with you, look, I... As a father and I'm imperfect I just want to hear from my kids I might know what they're gonna ask before they ask it I still want to hear them ask it I still want to hear from them I love them God loves his people and he chose to love you in spite of you that's why we don't have to manipulate or butter him up because his love for us is based on his providence as well he made the decision he chose you he has given you mercy he has given you grace Jesus says, whatever you ask, you will receive if you come in faith. He wants us to press in. He wants us to, he wants us to stand before him and keep asking and keep believing. Now, passages like this, Matthew two, uh, twenty-one, twenty-two, if you ask, you will receive in faith, often get twisted by the so-called word, word, faith, prosperity, health, wealth preachers. And they'll start demanding of God and binding things and doing all sorts of goofy stuff to manipulate God, to get God to do things. It's important to note that inside of the Bible that God does things even when we don't have faith. I think of Matthew chapter 8 where we read about the Roman centurion and his servant who is deathly ill. The centurion comes to Jesus and says, Speak a word and my servant will be healed. The servant isn't shown in the text doing anything by way of faith. It's someone petitioning on behalf of another. And Jesus says, Go on your way as you have believed so it will be done for you. It wasn't the servant's faith. It had nothing to do with it. It was God's sovereign hand. I think of Mark chapter 9 where Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. and, and, And he comes to him. And he says to him, Lord, help my unbelief. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, you have to believe in order for me to do it. No, no, no. He says, help me in my unbelief. And that's an important prayer for us, too, because there are times, let's just be honest, where we get into those places of doubt. You see, the darkness will take us into places of of doubt. It is important for you to hold fast and remind yourself, never doubt in the darkness what God has revealed in the light. He is faithful, and you know that. But in darkness and doubt, your mind will take you places that it ought not to go, and you just cry out to God, oh, God, help me in my doubt. Help me in this darkness. In Acts 12, when the church was praying for Peter to be delivered from prison, the text tells us they doubted. But God answered nonetheless. Uh, Lazarus in John 11 is dead. He has no faith. He's dead. And he comes back to life. Faith is important as we approach God. I'm using some cross references there to counter some of the prosperity gospel that is out there and to encourage you as well that when you're in moments of despair and doubt, it doesn't matter. We still cry out to God. He is our delight. He is our delight. Let me give you, by way of a prayerology, here this morning, some things that will hinder your prayer. These are important things for you to know. Uh, When we willingly harbor personal sin, according to Psalm 66, verse 18, that hinders our prayer. When we have wrong motives, according to James 4.3, that hinders our prayer. Look at what James 4.3 says. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. A hindrance to prayer is having wrong motives. According to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, a treating one's wife badly hinders your prayers. That's what 1 Peter 3 7 says. Look it up. According to James, a lack of trust in God can hinder our prayers. According to Proverbs 28, verse 9, a rejection of God's word can hinder our prayers. These are, are things I want you to understand prayer this morning, and so I want to show you look, there are some things that can get in the way, so beware of these. Examine your heart when you pray. Beware of these, but also beware of this big picture. Prayer is a non-negotiable. Prayer changes our surroundings. God's immutable. He's not changing. But in his providence, he operates by way of concurrence through our prayers to accomplish his will. Now, back to the book of Daniel, where we left off. He was in a lion's den. Uh, Spoiler alert, God delivers him and, and uses prayer to change those surroundings. Then in Daniel chapter 7 through 8, he receives a vision. I said the book breaks down into narratives and the visions. So Daniel 7 through 8, he receives a vision. And then in Daniel 9, if you would turn there quickly, Daniel prays to God, and he prays for understanding about something in Scripture, specifically the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote about this time of exile. And Daniel wants to understand it, and he's crying out to God in intercession. And then we read in Daniel chapter 9, and for sake of moving fast, I'll, I'll survey some of this. But draw your eyes at verse 3 in Daniel 9. I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting. I prayed to the Lord, verse 4. I confessed to the Lord. He starts crying out for sin. We have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've acted. We've rebelled, verse 5. Moreover, verse 6, we have not listened to your servants and the prophets. He starts crying out to the Lord. He starts crying out to him. And this leads me to the next point on your outline, that prayer is about relationship. All of the things that you read here from verse 3 to verse 11, you see Daniel praying, and he's praying about relationship. Sin that ruins relationship, rebellion against God. It's a very personal prayer, and it reminds us that prayer is about relationship. It's just coming to God. It's just pouring out your heart to God, as we said by way of introduction. Daniel's pouring his heart out to God. He's relating to God. He's just, hey, let me, you know, God, this is what's going on. Israel's messed up. He's venting to God. He's crying out to God. He's, he's, he's just being honest with God. This is what we're going through, this, this era of exile. This is, this is what's up. And Daniel's not in a ditch. This isn't, you know, uh, there's, as they say, there's no atheists in foxholes. You know, Daniel's not turning to God at the last moment. We've already seen this is a part of his life. This is a rhythm of his life. But that said, if we're honest with ourselves, we often treat God that way. It's when you get a head cold or when you're in pain or when you're going through relationship problems or health or something like that where you run to God in prayer. It's been said that we often treat God like a spare tire. A spare tire is forgotten for months at a time until we suddenly have a flat on the road. And then we want the spare tire to be in good condition, ready for use. Just so, many forget God during the times when things are well, and then in an emergency, they want God to be on hand, immediately ready to hear and to answer all of their cries of distress. That said, if you find yourself doing the spare tire thing, uh, don't let the guilt of that stop you from running to God, for He is gracious. Just say, Lord, I'm, you know my prayer life has been whack lately, and I've grown cold, and I, I need your forgiveness. I, ne- I need you to pour out to me. Do you ever feel like you're in a place where you just don't know what to say to God? Maybe you don't know know, how to approach him or something with something. Maybe you listen to others and you hear them pray and you go, man, I can't pray the way brother so-and-so prays or sister so-and-so prays. I hope he doesn't call on me to pray because I'm not going to sound as eloquent as so-and-so or such-and-such. Again, prayer is not a professional sport. It's just a reflection of, of your love with God. Rousseau famously said that to write a good love letter, you'll begin without knowing what you are going to say and end without knowing what you have said. It's just pouring out your heart to God. You see Daniel doing that here in this chapter. He's just pouring his heart out to God. And for sake of time, after he pours his heart out to God, God does something supernatural. He brings an angel to Daniel. If you keep reading the text later this week, it's a fantastic text. And the angel comes to Daniel and shares with Daniel a revelation, a revelation, a word from God, and shares with Daniel that while he was praying, there was stuff going on in the spiritual realm. There was a conflict going on between the heavens and the earth, reminding him that Daniel, God is using these prayers not just to change your surroundings and the things that you can see, but surroundings in the spiritual realm. We are reminded in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That, that's where the battle is. And so that brings us to a, a final point for us to consider before conclusion here. Prayer is a, a non-negotiable. We, we, we started with, let me give you a fourth and final point here. Prayer is a non-negotiable. Prayer changes our surroundings. Prayer is about relationship. We see Daniel is pouring his heart out. Prayer penetrates the darkness. When you read Daniel chapter 10, you read about this encounter and the pushing back of the darkness, you you, you see that God is actually using Daniel's prayer for that end. And that reminds us, as we look at our fallen world, as we look at our nation, as we look at divides, as we look at war, as we look at uh, uh, evil and wickedness, the church of Jesus Christ has a power that the government doesn't have, that the police don't have, the politicians don't have, the teachers, the schools don't have. We have a direct access to God. And a God who is providentially ordained to use the prayers of his people to change our surroundings. The, The homelessness in the park, the crimes in the streets, the racial divides, the political divides, the this, the that, the the. You know, you can keep going on with the things that the news tells us we're supposed to be worried about. That the news tells preachers they're supposed to be talking about besides the gospel of Jesus Christ on a Sunday morning. We come to him and we cling to his gospel. We cling to this holy God that we've all rebelled against, a God who, who, who has every right to close his ears to us and say, I don't want to hear from you because of what you have done. And yet he holds with his hands open and his ears wide open to us. And not because he's, he's a pushover, but because the Father sent the Son to pay the debt that we owed. Wages of our sin against the giver of life is death. That's what we deserve. And the Son came and he took death for us. The Son came and invites us. I'll tell you how to pray. The disciples' prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. What a fantastic prayer. In that prayer, he starts it, inviting us that we can call the Father our Father. That we can cry out for him to deliver us from the evil day. Reminding us of this point that prayer is penetrating the darkness. Maybe the world, maybe the nation... And its divides are just a symptom of the prayerlessness of God's people in the United States of America. And we look at the news and we say, you know, it's President so-and-so's fault. It's the right, it's the left, it's this, it's that. I'm burdened that it's us. And if the church was on bended knee, and the church was running to the Lord, we see in the Bible, surroundings change. Cry out to Him. Those things that you used to pray about, that you've given up on, may they be rekindled today. By way of conclusion, how should we pray? We should be committed to prayer regularly. We are told in Scripture to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. A quick, a quick acronym for you, how to pray. We talk about the facts of prayer. F-A-C-T-S. F-A-C-T-S. We pray in faith. We come to the Lord in faith. And here, the acts of prayer. Just follow it. A, adoration. You find yourself, I I don't know how to pray. Help me. Here, come to the Lord in faith and then adore him. Just stuff that you've read about him in the Bible, stuff that I've taught you about him, just, you're immutable. That's awesome. Just adore him for being immutable and holy. Then you move from adoration into confession. Lord, forgive me. I've, I've done this. Lord, forgive me. I made this mistake. Lord, forgive me for the things that I don't even know to ask forgiveness for. So, so faith, adoration, confession, tea, thanksgiving. Lord, th- thank you for my mom. Thank you for my dad. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. We, we often wait until we lose something to be thankful for it, right? And lastly, for facts, Okay, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Pray for Clanky. Pray for Terrence. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your church. Pray for your kids. Pray for your grandkids. Pray for your future spouse if you're single. Pray for the gift of singleness. Pray for the widows. Pray for the orphans. Pray for the city. Pray for the state. Pray for those in power. Now, how can we pray? What keeps us going? As I shared with you, it's not duty, it's delight. If prayers become a duty... Then, then, then you have to get out of that rut and say, Lord, make it a delight. Because as I said, when you like doing something, you don't have to force yourself to do it. You just, you just do it. I have never forced myself to eat bacon. It has never happened. I don't ever go, oh, I can't finish my plate, Dad. You better finish that bacon. Oh, you know, you know, I don't have to force myself to do things that make me happy. John 16, we saw joy in prayer. How can we pray? Big picture here. We pray We pray because of what the Son has accomplished for us, as I shared with you. He died for us. And let me not just talk about it. Let me invite you to come to him. Much of the problem, I think, in our nation is that far too many preachers assume that everyone in the room is a believer, so we treat everyone like they're Christians. And just because you're in a car, it doesn't make you a garage any more than being in a church building makes you a believer. Come to him. Be saved. Be forgiven by him. That's how you can pray. Because he who saved you is your prayer intercession by the Spirit. He perfectly prays. The Spirit perfectly prays on your behalf, we read inside of scriptures. We we read from Luke 22. He's telling the disciples to pray. And they're sawing logs in the middle of this spiritual battle that's going around them. They're taking a nap. And what is he doing? He's in Gethsemane praying, sweating. Like like blood drops, he's praying so intensely for his people. Every time I, I feel the guilt of "I should pray more," I'm drawn back in the gospel and I go, "I have one who prays perfectly for me. I have one who has made me one with his father. And then that fills your heart with delight, and you find yourself just talking to him, and it's just a, it's just a natural thing. But never forget it's not natural. It's supernatural. You must be born again. That's how you pray. What if we don't pray? Well, run back to the gospel. It is a non-negotiable. We are commanded in scripture to pray. And so we want to run to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for my prayerlessness. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, that's there in the parentheses. David said, far be it from me that I should sin against my Lord in ceasing to pray. Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. So we come back to the gospel for our joy, and we're reminded that he's the perfect prayer. He's the perfect intercessor. He he does it for me, and so I can say, forgive me and thank you that you are what I am not, the perfect one in prayer. What if we don't pray? Well, if prayer changes our surroundings, then when we don't pray, we, we miss out. And so as I submitted to you, I think things look the way they do in our world, not because of the politicians Uh, To be sure, they will be held responsible, let's be clear. But we as well will be held responsible. You have not because you ask not. If we don't pray, it's about relationships. So our relationship with the Lord will be impacted. The more you run to him in prayer, you'll experience this existentially. You get to know him more. Finally, if prayer penetrates the darkness, a failure to pray will logically then lead to an empowering of wickedness. Prayer is warfare. And prayer is worship. Okay? Prayer is like a sword for battle. And prayer is like a pillow for laying on and resting in the Lord. There are families that need breakthrough. Our city needs a breakthrough. We have been called to pray and to serve and to preach and to proclaim. I hope this morning... You'll have a sense of that. Now as we cry out to the Lord in song, now as we open our communion cups before we sing, and we're reminded of what he has done for us. We're reminded of of that night that we began our service with in Luke 22. He served them the bread. The devil was literally in the room as he was doing this, we read in Luke 22. And he served them the bread in the face of darkness. He said, this is my body that will be broken for you. Let's eat. And he served them the cup of the Passover, reminding them of God's faithfulness to Israel. And said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So we come and we drink the cup and we say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying in our place. For 2,000 years, his people have been eating bread and drinking from the cup. Gathering to hear him proclaimed. The Apostle Paul reminded the church in Corinth that this is foolishness to the world. You guys will sit in this room for two hours once a week, hear someone talking about Jesus, sing songs, pray, eat some bread, drink some juice, and you think you're going to change the world? (laughs) Yeah, I think we're going to change the world by gathering with my brothers and sisters and drinking a little cup of juice and preaching my heart out about what Jesus has done. And I stand on the revelation of God's word that that is the case. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, we read, These are those who have turned the world upside down, speaking of the church, because they were faithful to preach and faithful to pray and to celebrate communion and remind the world who God is and how he operates, to call us in action with his concurrence to change the world for his name and for his glory. Let's pray and let's sing. Father, thank you for your love for us this morning. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. That in, in spite of our lovelessness, in spite of our way, waywardness, in spite of our rebellion, that you would receive us unto yourself. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would feel the weight of your law, that there wouldn't be a person here that this word would go in one ear and out the other, specifically that we are sinners and we deserve to be punished. And we feel the weight of that. And we feel the sin within us coming up with excuses. Well, I wouldn't have done it if this didn't happen or I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And then we feel the weight of your law again reminding us that we're responsible. And as the weight is just about to crush us or as the darkness is just about to push us further into our excusing or further into our addiction, you come and you rescue us and you break the chains and you bring us unto yourself. Lord, save today. Fill your church with your spirit. Regenerate hearts. Draw us to you. And may this week be a week of prayer because you did a work in us through your word. In Christ's name we pray and we offer these songs. Amen.